One of the beautiful things about the God that we serve is that he's not the God of any one nation, but he's the God of the whole world. He is uh, omnipresent. He is just as much as in Albania as he is here, as he is in other countries in the world. And that's a beautiful and wonderful thought, especially as we gather together and we worship and we sing songs of praise and we take the Lord's Supper. We're sharing a meal with brethren that we can't see with brethren that we've never met, but that we're united together by the blood of Jesus, by something that transcends time and something that transcends location and geography. There's something more powerful than that that unites us. And and I think that's a wonderful thing to remember. And I'm so glad that we at this church uh, do take missions seriously. I'm so glad that we have so many people here who are ready and willing to go and uh, to visit other parts in the world, to visit Albania and to uh, encourage and to be a part of the, the good work that is going on there. God is omnipresent, but at the same time as you read through the Bible, you do get the impression there are moments where God is more, is that telling me to hurry up? No. Uh, (laughs) uh, You do get the impression uh, that there are times God is more present or present in a unique way in certain locations. Um, As you read through the Old Testament, you get the impression that the tabernacle or the temple, while yes, God is omnipresent, God's dwelling place was there. Like that, that's what we're told. His dwelling place was, was in the tabernacle. That was his home, is the house of God. And as you read through some of the instructions about the tabernacle, one of the things that you see, and we talked about this a little bit in Bible class this morning, was that Israel was welcoming God to live among them when they built the tabernacle. They built the tabernacle, which is a big, huge tent, while they were all living in tents. And that tent was placed right in the middle of wherever they camped in the wilderness. And it was a way of saying God's going to be the center of our community. He's going to dwell among us. But if you're going to have God who is perfect and holy and mighty and good live among you, you should probably try to be perfect and holy and and good. Uh, The problem is we're often not. And so the, the story of Leviticus is how do we take an impure, sinful, and unholy people and make them acceptable to dwell in the presence of God. Well, you have to make them holy. And so there is cleansing rituals, there are sacrifices, there are these reminders day in and day out of our unholiness and of God's purification that can allow him to live among us. Like, that's what Leviticus is about. It's about how do you get a temple or a tent that belongs to God to be my next door neighbor? Uh, what changes do I have to make? What sort of cleansing do I need to go through? And that's, that's, what, that's what Leviticus is trying to bring about, the presence of God among the people of God. Well, as you read through the story of the Old Testament, you get to uh, an account that deals very much with the presence of God. And it particularly deals with the presence of God in a context where Israel is misusing the presence of God. They're trying to steal, in essence, or to, uh, to manipulate the presence of God into their favor against their enemies. And it actually ends up being kind of a funny story because then Israel's enemies do the same thing back to them, and it doesn't work out well for anyone because God doesn't really like to be manipulated. It comes from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, and it's in chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. It's this story about Israel losing the Ark of the Covenant. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and I'll give you a brief uh, rundown of basically what happens in this story. Israel has some enemies. 
they are going to battle against the Philistines. And they actually do battle against the Philistines, and they lose. And they're thinking, what in the world? Why didn't God give us the victory? And they have a couple of options here. They could, for example, take a look at their lives and investigate. Are we in a good relationship with God right now? Is there a reason God wouldn't uh, give us the victory? Instead of doing that, though, they decide, hey, let's take the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God in Israel, and let's bring that out to the battle with us. Maybe if he's a little bit closer to the battle, we can win. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant, which you're not supposed to do, and they bring it out to a battle, which you're not supposed to do, and all of the people get super pumped up and excited. They are thinking, oh, this is it. We're definitely going to win now. And all the people cheer and chant with a, with a great roar of excitement and encouragement and enthusiasm. They're definitely going to win this battle. God is with them. They're their roars of excitement are so loud that the Philistines hear them. And the Philistines start thinking, uh-oh, we're in trouble, gentlemen. Uh, the gods have come among them. They have divine gods on their side. What are we going to do? And there's worry and there's fear and they're thinking, well, I mean, I heard stories about what they did to the Egyptians. The Egyptians are even more powerful than us. Like, what are we going to do? But then they calm themselves down. And in chapter 4 and verse 9, this is what the Philistines say. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. Now, the hubris in that sentence right there, oh, we have to fight against God? Well, be a man and fight him. It's like, well, men don't do well against God. It's like, like saying be a man isn't, uh, isn't really the direction you should go if you're wanting to, you know, have God as your opposition. But they do that. And so we're about to see what a, what a mighty army of men versus God looks like. And if you know anything about the power of God, that shouldn't be a problem, right? God should just wipe them out. Well, guess what happens? They go to battle, and Israel is absolutely flattened. And the Ark of the Covenant actually gets stolen by the Philistines, and they take it back to their place. So here's what happened. The children of Israel, rather than like obeying God and trying to be holy to have him live among their presence, what they did instead was they tried to manipulate God into being a lucky rabbit's foot of sorts, like some sort of symbol that they could take into battle, and then they'll be victor victorious. They were using God not to honor and worship him, but so that he could be manipulated into giving them whatever they want, you know, victory over their enemies. Uh, I think there's a couple of things we could potentially do with the gift of divine presence that are not helpful. One of them is to try to use God like a lucky rabbit's foot. To use God like something, if, if I carry God with me into this setting or this setting, then I'll be, I'll be blessed, then I'll be victorious, then I'll be able to overcome and, and to conquer and to, to win. Um, if you try to make God your teammate in politics so that you could get political power, or if you try to make God your teammate on the gridiron so that you could win the game, I think in those instances we may be in some ways, misusing and misunderstanding and misapplying the blessing of divine presence, the blessing of the very presence of God in our lives. And so Israel tried that, and it did not work out well. The Philistines then take the presence of God to do something else with it. They're not really using it to get lucky. They're not using it uh, as a lucky rabbit's foot or some sort of thing that will bless them. They're using it instead as a way of showing dominance and victory. 
so when, when I went to high school, I went to Sherman High School in Sherman, Texas, and we had a big rivalry in us, all of our sports and pretty much everything. It was Denison, and I'm gonna tell you something. Anyone from Denison is worthless still to this day, I think that, but anyway. Uh, we had a big rivalry against them, went back a really long time, and in football, um, there was the Battle of the Axe. That's what the game was called when we played against them, and there was an actual axe that whoever won the game got to keep the axe at their house, or at their, their school, uh, for that year, and uh, it had all the scores written on it, which we had way more wins, but uh, anyway, uh, it had all the scores uh, written on it, and it actually had a second axe head on it, because it the rivalry has gone on over 100 years, and, and so it was the Battle of the Axe. And whoever had the axe had bragging rights. Whoever had the axe could say that we defeated you. We're winners. You guys stink. And uh, you, like, that, was, that was what you could do if you had the axe. I think the Philistines were using the Ark of the Covenant kind of like that axe. Uh, that was their way of saying, we dominated you. That was the, our way of saying that we're more powerful than you and your God. We be courageous men, and not only can we defeat you, we can defeat your God. So you know what Israel did by bringing the Ark of the Covenant out there and then losing the fight? They not only lost, they made God look weak and foolish. The Philistines then thought, hey, we have this divine God of Israel, and we can own him. We can, take, we can steal your gods if we want to. We can put them in our temples with our gods. And so the Philistines start acting like they are the, you know, the most impressive military in all the world because they have used the divine presence of God as bragging rights. They've used it as their axe to say that they're better than anyone else. Now what happens while the Ark is in... Uh, the, the land of the Philistines is actually kind of, kind of humorous. Uh, what they do is they take it first to Ashdod, and they stick it in there in the temple of, uh, of uh, their god, Dagon. And they all go to bed that night. They wake up the next morning, and they see that the Ark of the Covenant is there, but that their god has fallen over. And what's funny about a god falling over is uh, they shouldn't need help up, but uh, they have to go and get their god and stand him back up and make him nice and pretty again. And then they go to bed again that night, and then they come back the next day, and their god has fallen over again. This time his face and his hands have broken off as he hits the ground. Not only that, then the people start to get sick, and the people of the land start to develop tumors, and they start thinking, okay, we need to get this box out of here. And so they, they don't send it back to Israel. They send it to another Philistine city and say, you deal with it. And so they take it from uh, Ashdod and they send it to Gath. And it gets to Gath and it's not there very long before they're like, hey, this is not good for us to have because you know, the Israelites aren't victorious over us, but this box sure is causing us a lot of problems because people are getting sick, there's illnesses, there's tumors. And so they end up sending it off to Ekron. And once it gets there, the people start developing the same things. And they're thinking, well, this is terrible. And so they meet together and figure out what are we gonna do with this thing? Uh, it's causing misery in all of our lives. I know what we'll do will send it back to Israel. And uh, they end up putting it on a cart. This is when you get uh, into the chapter uh, five and six. And they start sending it back, but they send it with a couple of gifts. And these are, in my estimation, the funniest gifts that have ever been made. Um, they, they send it with some gold and you know what? They don't know a lot about Israel's God. So they look at like the plagues that they've suffered through, like tumors, and they think, maybe if we fill it with some gold tumors, uh, that'll, that'll appease the God. So they put five gold tumors in there and five golden mice. 
and they send it back to Israel, you know, maybe that will, will put an end to all of this. And uh, so they do that. Uh, by the way, if you're like wanting to get a romantic gift for your wife or something, a golden tumor is not, not the way to go. Um, so they send it back. It goes to uh, Beth Shemet. And once it gets there, it becomes not so much like a lucky rabbit's foot and not so much like the axe that you hold up in victory. It becomes more like a decoration. And the children of Israel have it there, but you know what they still haven't done? They still haven't actually like repented and thought we should try to live in holiness with the presence of God. It's like they're trying to use the presence of God to do all sorts of things except for transform themselves. And other plagues happen there, and they end up taking the Ark of the Covenant, and they, if you look at chapter 7 and verse 1, it says, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the Ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Amenadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. So they take it and they put it in the house of Amenadab. They consecrate Eleazar to take care of it. Now, if I'm aware of this history of this ark, and I'm Eleazar or Aminadab, I'm not thrilled that it's been brought to my house. Uh, imagine, like, having an argument over breakfast uh, with your family, and looking over and seeing it, and be like, but I love you. <laughs> like, you're going you're gonna to have to be on your very best behavior uh, with that thing around you, because it's actually kind of a terrifying idea to have the presence of God that close to you. Um, and sometimes, I think that's one of the points of the story. Sometimes we talk so flippantly and easily about wanting God to dwell with us and be in us. That's good, but that does require something of you. God's not just going to bless you because he's a lucky rabbit's foot, and he certainly isn't a way to get power over your enemies, and he certainly isn't something that you use to brag uh, about your superiority over the other people, and he certainly isn't just some decoration to make your life look nice and good. If you're going to want God to dwell with you, which as Christians who have the very indwelling of God's Holy Spirit among us and who try to be people who show God's goodness through our lives and do dwell in the very presence of God, that comes with responsibilities to act in such a way that demonstrates God's holiness. So when the ark is brought back, here's what Samuel says in chapter 7 and verse 3. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. You know what would have worked a lot better at the beginning of the story when you're having these battles with the Philistines? How about you turn to the Lord with all of your heart? Don't try to manipulate his presence into giving you the victory. Why don't you just turn to him? And I would say, if we're Christians and we want God to dwell among us. The most important thing we can do, the only thing we can do, is serve him with love, with faithfulness, with holiness, and welcome him. Um, don't manipulate him into giving us what we want, but rather let's try to use our lives in service of what he wants. That's how you dwell in the presence of God. Um, if you're going to be a person who has the Holy Spirit with you, that it dwells among you, that he dwells among you, um, then live your life in such a way that honors the Holy Spirit and that welcomes him into your life through obedience, faithfulness, and holiness. There's a requirement, there are responsibilities that come with God dwelling among you. 
Uh, and so let's take those responsibilities seriously. And if there's anyone here who would like the prayers of the church, who would like the forgiveness that God offers, please let that be known. We'd love to help you. We'd love to pray for you and encourage you. Uh, we have some elders in the back in the library who would like to meet with you if uh, you want to talk to them, or you can get, come and sit on the front row. If there's anyone who wants to become a Christian, we pray that you would let that be known as well. You can come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.